This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Satyarash Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Venita Sina, who is um, um, the professor at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at uh, NUS. We'll be speaking about a brand new publication called Temple Tracks, Labor, Piety, and Railway Construction in, in, in Asia. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, uh, tell us a, a little bit about the journey of how you how you got interested. H- how did you get on these tracks, so to speak, of research? Yes. Hi. Thank you. May I call you Raj? Of course. Of course. Thank you, Raj, so much for this opportunity to talk about uh, this book, which has been uh, in the making for some time, and it's it's one that I have really enjoyed uh, writing and and doing the research for. Uh, you know, my work has been uh, uh, long interested in in mapping Hindu uh, landscapes in Singapore and Malaysia. So, in many ways, diaspora Hinduism is is not uh, a new new field for me at all. But uh, certainly, looking at the historical construction of the railways in the region and kind of finding uh, linkages between railway construction and Indian labor uh, has been a, a new. Uh, perspective that I have used to understand diaspora and Hinduism. So uh, I became interested in this, ironically, uh, in June 2011, uh, precisely at the moment when the railway tracks were being removed from across the island in Singapore. So ironically, at the time when the railway tracks were being removed, uh, I became interested in this whole question of, well, how were they first of all put there? Uh, historically, right? So, so the uh, the sort of uh, removal of the tracks made me think about, you know, who were these individuals who had come to build these tracks? And I see it's ironic because the people who were removing these tracks were uh, largely South Asian labor from uh, India, from from uh, you know Nepal, from from Bangladesh, etc. And so it, it seemed to me very ironic that. The people who were removing these railways were connected historically with the railway construction in the first place because their ancestors that actually laid these tracks, you know, more than a hundred years ago. So, so I became interested in uh, in in this uh, you know uh, project, which I saw as uh, kind of three entangled narratives. Right. So one, it's it's about the uh, narrative of. Uh, railway construction. Uh, second, it's the narrative of Indian labor migration. And three, it's it's the narrative of uh, temple building or what I call religion making uh, in regions that were known as British Malaya, which refers to the contemporary countries of Singapore and, and, and Malaysia. So so the, the intersection of these three narratives was what drew me to this project. Uh, when the railways were kind of being modernized across Malaysia and being removed from from Singapore. Uh, I find this quite a fascinating uh, convergence of tracks, so to speak, not to strain the metaphor too much. But um, 
Now, tell us a little bit, set the stage about um, about the diasporic situation. Now, tell us a bit about the background of what was happening at this time. Right. So historically, of course, uh, Singapore and, and, and Malaysia, contemporary Singapore and Malaysia were, were part of this region uh, called British Malaya in the in the 19th century when uh, you know uh, the the East India Company arrived uh, in places like Penang and and Singapore and set up trading posts in these in these places and these were sort of the beginnings of uh, if you like the precursors of of colonial capitalism. So in Singapore, for example, uh, Sir Stanford Raffles arrived in the year 1819. It's it's as early as that. Uh, and you know, of course, in order to build a colony, they relied on huge numbers of imported labor. So labor migrations began uh, almost immediately when the trading post was set up, and large numbers of Indians were brought in from from uh, in South India and North India as well, uh, basically to uh, build infrastructures in the colonies, and of course to serve as labor in the colonial capitalist product project of of, of modernity. Uh, so, you know, Indian labor has a long presence in these regions going back to the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, and, you know, some of the, the earliest tracks in the in the region were laid, uh, you know, towards the end of the 19th century. But Indian labor has been in, in the area since the 1830s, at least. What does the book argue? What is the hopeful primary takeaway or just the book? Right. So, I, you know, one of the, one of the takeaways of, of the book is that uh, you know, this book is about the historical production of the railways and and the religious infrastructure in in British Malaya, and I actually use the lens of infrastructure to understand both the railways as well as the religious landscape. And I think one of the takeaways for me is that you know, religious making and temple building in British Malaya occurs in the shadow of colonial capitalism, right? And both of these actually happen almost concurrently. Because uh, the the labor that was brought in to build the railways was also the constituency that built some of the earliest temples in the area, right? So uh, Indian laborers were brought in, and you know, my my book focuses on labor, and you know, my my intention is to really center railway labor in the retelling of railway histories, because you know, I argue that most uh, of the time, railway laborers are not. Uh, remembered and the contributions are not documented or highlighted. So I consciously uh, center the role of railway labor in producing uh, the railways. But in, in the case of British Malaya, not only did they build the railways, they also built a sacred landscape concurrently because the, the railway laborers were actually housed by the British very close to railway premises. And, you know, the the group of laborers that I'm looking at are called the permanent way laborers. These were the guys who were uh, in charge of building and laying the tracks, and they would maintain the tracks on a daily basis. They would walk up and down the tracks and uh, check the tracks every day. And they were housed uh, in makeshift, uh, very basic rudimentary housing along the railway tracks, right? So you would have like, you know, 20 laborers living together with the supervisor along the railway tracks. And so little communities were set up all across the railways. And, you know, most of the laborers came from Tamil Nadu uh, in South India. And the tunnels had a saying that wherever you stay, you should always make sure that you build a temple, right? So these laborers actually ended up building little shrines and temples for their deities that they had brought with them 
across the shores, they ended up building temples along the railway tracks. So even uh, as recently as 10 years ago, if you had taken the train from Singapore to Malaysia or across Malaysia, you would find that, you know, many Hindu temples were actually built right alongside the railway tracks, you know, and that this was a, a very, very uh, prominent and visible uh, feature of the railway landscape that the temples were embedded within railway premises, right? So I, I talk about this in the book as, uh, you know, that, that the workspaces and the living spaces of railway labors were contiguous sites. They were almost the same sites. And so, you know, the temples were embedded within railway sites. So I think one of the major takeaways for me is that uh, these temples really grew under the shadow of colonial modernity, right? And not, not that the, you know, British were uh, particularly interested in the spiritual salvation of their subjects, but it was just very expedient for them to allow that so that, you know, the laborers would feel at home and they would want to, uh, you know, talk about going back to to India, et cetera. So, so that's one one big takeaway that, you know, it was precisely in the shadow of colonial modernity that a religious landscape flourished, you know? Well, perhaps if we make the cage sufficiently comfortable, the bird will be happy. And the birds right. will be happy, so yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um, how would you... Um, how would you characterize the motivation or motivations for the temple building? Would you say, is it simply uh, uh, to provide a means of sort of uh, religious engagement expression? Or would you say there's more behind the motivation? Right. So I think, uh, you know, as I said, the Tamils have a very prominent uh, saying that, you know, wherever you live, you have to build temples. And and the, the Tamil uh, labor, wherever they went across the world. Indian labor was very much in demand through the 19th century. They traveled everywhere. Uh, they were considered very cheap and docile forms of labor. So they ended up in parts of Africa. Of course, they were in the Caribbean and, you know, they were in Asia, etc. Um, the the town laborers in particular uh, transported their uh, deities from, from, from Tamil Nadu. And of course, most of the Tamil laborers who moved out were from the lowest of the castes hierarchy, many of them were Dalits, right? You know, what we consider the untouchable communities. And so the, the deities they brought with them were all sort of uh, deities of the popular folk Hindu traditions. These were hard gods who sat in the big, uh, you know, Hindu temples in India. These were sort of guardian deities, right? Deities who provided protection and security for their devotees. And, and you know, the fact that these deities traveled with them to diasporic shores meant that the, the the people who were you know bringing that thought of them as in this in, in indispensable to, to their spiritual lives but also that they needed protection in unfamiliar uh you know terrains and harsh terrains uh with with regard to railway building in particular railway building of course we know everywhere was extremely dangerous and risk-laden and you know these people were working in, in very harsh conditions with hardly any tools and technologies. Most of the time they work with their bare hands, literally. So I think part of the motivation for building temples was basically to seek, uh, you know, protection from the elements, from the sort of unknown uh, dangerous forces that they were surrounded by. And, and of course, it was a way for them to enact their devotion uh, to their to their deities, right? And so it was a way of expressing uh, piety, but it was also... Uh, about seeking protection. So so many of the temples along the railway tracks in Malaya were built for these guardian deities, you know, deities who 
actually were very marginal themselves uh, within an Indian context, but but in, in British Malaya, they actually took center stage over time. Well, one gets a sense of sort of a beautiful, how to say, symbiosis where they are doing this, um, you know, for, for the honor and the grandeur and the, and the veneration of the piety towards the deity, but also in 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 hopes of seeking the protection and and you yes. know the support uh, yeah. of the deity for for you know uh, for this perilous task, potentially perilous, often perilous task. Um, uh, who speaking of speaking of the fact that these were uh, non brahmanical communities, tell us a bit about uh, the rituals or the officiation. Were, were there officiants in the temples? Yeah, so most of these temples were built by the laborers themselves. So the the British, uh, you know, uh, supervisors of, of of railways were uh, tolerant enough of the practices and rituals and festivals of of the laborers, and in fact, even even officiated at many of them. And so, so the British actually allowed uh, the laborers to build these temples, but they also, in fact, gave them little plots of land within railway premises to do so. Uh, so these were sort of uh, laborers were given what were called temporary occupation licenses to set up little shrines. And so uh, in these shrines, they would house very rudimentary forms of, of their deities. Some of them were just, uh, you know, either icons representing the deity. Some of them were kind of very rough, uh, you know, cement, uh, brick, stone built structures of, of anthropomorphized versions of their deities. Um, but uh, they were they were no religious specialists, so to speak, because many of these uh, individuals were from Dalit and untouchable uh, communities themselves. And so, interestingly, the laborers uh, themselves not just built the uh, temples; they also functioned as as specialists, as ritual specialists within the temples. So, uh, it, it, I find this remarkable because the, these laborers who came from from India didn't know how to build railways. They learned that on the spot. Neither did they know how to build temples, and they learned that on the spot as well. And they also learned to, uh, you know, through through mimicry and imitation, and just learning and watching how their ancestors had done it back home, and watching how it was done in the temples, uh, proper temples in, in in Singapore and Malaysia, just learned how to do do it themselves in a sense, right? So, some of the practices that were uh, you know, performed within these temples included uh, things like uh, uh, animal sacrifices. Uh, they had uh, various uh, sort of uh, spirit medium sessions where the deity was invoked and invited into a into a ritual specialist. You know, they had festivals in honor of particular deities, uh, and then they, like I said, they had the usual, you know, sort of. Uh, altar at which the deity was represented and then they would offer you know everyday pujas and, and things like that so those are recognizable but they really followed the uh ritual practices of folk and popular hinduism from Nadu. that's that's what they did are the temples still being used yes actually that was you know that's one of the fascinating uh aspects of the of, of my uh, research that you know one would expect that some of these temples which were built as long as a hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, would have perished. And indeed, many of them have disappeared because they were built with perishable materials and it would be shocking to actually find uh, any remains of these temples, right? But uh, in, in my ethnographic journeys, which which I undertook uh, on the train, that was part of my methodological choice to actually map 
a religious landscape while moving on the train from Singapore to Malaysia and upwards, uh, you know, I, I discovered many, many existing temples and, and many of these temples were built by the railway laborers themselves. So uh, I first mapped the temples from the train and then I followed by road and I, you know, used uh, particular uh, 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 coordinates to identify these temples. So just to uh, sort of cut the long story short, I found a total of 94 still functioning railway men temples, which is what I call them because this is what uh, my interlocutors refer to as, as these temples. So temples which were built by the railway laborers are called railway men temples because they were mostly been built by men. Uh, and I found 94 of these still functioning across Singapore and Malaysia. Right. So, so that's, that's quite a fascinating sort of, uh, you know, uh, outcome of, of the journeys that I've undertaken. Of course, the temples have been transformed uh, in so many ways. Some of them have, have grown really large and others have uh, remained small, but they have been, uh, you know, rendered permanent because they have been supported by new community of devotees. And um, what I find particularly fascinating is that, uh, you know, Railways in Malaysia, of course, from Singapore, they've disappeared, as I said to you. So the railways came to Singapore in 1932, officially, and by 2011, they were gone. Uh, in Malaysia, the railways are still functioning, but they have been modernized and and uh, developed, right? So there's been tremendous change uh, that's taken place in the railway landscape. And against the backdrop of these kind of dramatic changes, it's the religious landscape that has persisted. Right, so you might expect that the solidity of the of the railways, the you know, the hardware would remain, but in fact, some of the uh, sacred landscapes have actually outlasted and outlived the railway railway landscape. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating given our our caricatures of of uh, uh, be they uh, appropriate or 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 or. or um, errant are caricatures of modernity, right? right. It's fascinating that <laughs> the hardware, the, the, yeah. the practical hardware to get people from A to B, uh, that's out of vogue, but yeah. the ancient ritual sphere, that's still up and running. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So these religious cultural worldviews, you know, have persisted. Of course, they've been transformed considerably, but, you know, uh, the connection to the railway remains and people remember that as real women temples. And, you know, I spoke to Hundreds of people who whose ancestors, fathers, great grandfathers, great grandfathers, uncles, you know, mothers have been involved in the construction. So, uh, yeah, your your comment just now preempted actually uh, two of the questions that uh, I had wanted to ask. So I'll I'll I'll, yeah. ask, I'll I'll ask both, and you can feel free to respond as you wish. Um, one, um, who frequents these temples? Yeah. And and two, you know, what was your research process like? Right. Uh, so the temples, of course, uh, you know, many of the temples which have been founded by the railway laborers uh, have stayed within families. So, uh, you know, I, I met many uh, railway families, so to speak, right? People who had many, many members of the family working in the railways. And uh, so entire families had been involved in putting together the temple and sustaining it. Uh, many of these temples still remain within the hands of these railway families. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they are, of course, supported by the family, but um, other temples have moved into different hands, right? So 
uh, you know, they have moved into hands which have no connection with the railways at all, but uh, people have wanted to uh, take over these temples and retain the railway connection and, and sustain them. So there have been new uh, communities uh, of, of devotees that have, you know, taken over many of these temples and, and sustained them. So um, these temples are very famous because they come with social histories and, uh, you know, people remember them, people talk about them. So they are frequented by, uh, you know, young people, by old people. Um, Malaysia and Singapore are connected by land. And so there's a great deal of, of uh, travel that takes place across these two countries. And hordes of Singaporeans, Hindus will travel to Malaysia to frequent some of these more famous real women temples because these temples are famous for two reasons, at least. One, because they have a connection with the railway. And two, because they are seen to be efficacious uh, in and of themselves, right? So they're associated with particular mythologies, particular deities, and they've acquired a kind of efficacious standing. And so people will travel. They, they become pilgrimage sites for, for many. This is what I was uh, thinking in my head, that it's, it's fascinating that a railway route becomes a, a de facto yatra, like so this is now a pilgrimage route. route. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. Oh, and, and I mean, that's a really good point. And in fact, uh, you know, that connects me to the second question uh, you had posed about what my journey was like, uh, you know, the whole process of doing the, the field work. Um, you know, I, I really had to uh, rethink some of the uh, sort of uh, foundational ways of doing ethnographic work. In, in this in this project because uh you know I had to rethink what I understand uh by data I had to rethink what I understand by field site I had to rethink what is what is ethnography right because I'm an ethnographer and in fact uh you know when I talked about the field site I didn't think in terms of well Singapore and Malaysia are my field sites my field site was actually constituted by more than a thousand kilometers of the railway tracks Right. Essentially, that became my field site because I was walking up and down those tracks. I was traveling on those tracks. I was driving alongside those tracks because, you know, that became the field site for me because I was searching for these real women temples. So, you know, I've had to kind of rethink uh, what field site means for me. And, and uh, you know, part of the inspiration for this actually came from my interlocutors themselves who also thought of the tracks in very different ways. They didn't just think of it as, you know, tracks which carry uh, the the trains, right? Uh, or, or as registers of mobility. They really thought of these tracks as enchanted spaces, right? I mean, these were animated, enlivened uh, spaces for them simply because they were inhibited by their deities and by their gods. And, and these guardian deities for whom these temples were built uh, are seen to be very different from the gods which sit in uh, consecrated temples, right? Because in consecrated temples, the gods are installed and occasionally they are mobile and they get taken out in processions. But uh, deities of popular uh, Hindu pantheon are mobile deities. They are on the go, you know, they are, they are, they are, they are walking, they are uh, riding on, on, on a horse, patrolling their territories and so, uh, you know, these tracks really became very central for, for 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 me as a researcher because I thought of them as as a kind of a continuous rolling uh, field site. But for my interlocutors, they were equally important because they were seen as enchanted spaces, you know. And uh, uh, 
So so they don't they don't just think of the temples as as enchanted. They actually thought of the hardware of the railways as also enchanted. You know, I I, I begin the book uh, with a uh, story and 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 you know I I describe the scene from my journeys uh, on on the train in Malaysia where I had gone on a family vacation and we had stopped at this. Uh, the train had stopped at this station in the state of, of, of uh, Johor in Malaysia. And as the train was pulling out, uh, a Hindu priest steps onto the platform carrying a tray, you know, of, of uh, Thali, of Arti. And he was doing uh, the Arti to the train that was departing, you know. Uh, and and I, that was incredible, right, that the railway hardware itself had been uh, recognized in very different ways by these uh, laborers, right, who didn't just think of temples as enchanted, they actually thought of the very hardware, the trains, the tracks themselves as enchanted, you know. So um, that, that was a very sort of fascinating uh, observation. It's, it's, it's utterly fascinating. You know, it seems to me that obviously, you know, as a, a scholar of religion, aside from the very problematic category of religion, you know, all of our all of our conceptions are just those conceptions, and they may be useful to a certain extent, and they may not. But this 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 idea of, you know, um, uh, uh, sacred versus profane, or sacred versus yes. secular, or or even the right. sense of you know the space one is in 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 a cathedral, yes. you know, receiving right. communion might be very different from the space one was in on, on the subway en route right. to the yeah. cathedral. And, and yet, uh, time and time again, we see uh, in the Indic context, that really is um, an imposition, that distinction, yes. insofar as yes. as everything can be. And, and I do a fair bit of continuing studies teaching, and I, I call it shaktification. Anything right. can be shaktified, right? Like, we, yes. we can infuse uh, energy uh, into anything. In any, yeah. and, and, yeah. and it's it, it, it's not that it's not that uh, we are worshiping uh, quote unquote idols or the insentient. It's that sentience can be invited to dwell in anything, and it's utterly fascinating. Where yeah. we'll have, um, I had the good fortune of going to the uh, there's a temple called the Richmond Hill Hindu Temple. It's it's a temple that is about an hour north of Toronto. Right. Um, now, Toronto is now currently statistically the world's most diverse city, but that certainly yeah. wasn't the case in the 80s right. uh, or the 70s. Now, an yeah. hour north of Toronto was far more homogenous demographically, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet, Tamil community as early as the 70s and the early 80s yeah. developed, yeah. Uh, you know, developed um, a trust, a board, and sought out land and built this now, you know, majestic, large temple. It's yeah. still quite thriving. And yes. uh, uh, whether uh, Westerners or those of Indic origin enter the temple, it's often commented or experienced that when you're in there, you don't know what country you're in. Like, right. you, yes. you, yeah. you, you know, you really, it's, it's, it really is quite something, the, the preservation yeah. of the traditions and the way of being and, and the field of energy that you might find in a, yeah. a temple uh, in India, Sri Lanka, etc. That's right. And, and uh, going, uh, going to this temple, it's, it's fascinating. Like one of the, one of the, the occasions that I tend to visit the temple for is my, um, my PhD topic was the Devi Mahatmya, also known as the Chandikat. It has 
you know, ritual life. And yeah. there's an annual chanting of, 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 of the Chandi, of the entire sort of uh, Saptashati uh, around the goddess festival, uh, the autumnal festival. And so at one point, uh, they will bless, uh, you know, the, the books, the, the actual Tandipat, the actual liturgy. If anybody has it, even among the even among the attendees, they'll bring them up and have them blessed. You'll see these 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 priests chanting Sanskrit from you know as if they're vestiges from the ancient world, but they'll be using their iPads and their iPhones. Yeah, yeah. And they'll even um, bless them because the 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 yeah. Chandipat is on the iPad. Yeah, and so yeah. it's yeah. fascinating, utterly fascinating to me. I, I mean, I'll just uh, you know thank you for sharing that. It's uh, really resonates with. Uh, a lot of what I found in my own research, uh, but certainly in the context of this particular book as well, where my interlocutors had no no difficulty uh, making these these transitions, right? These moves, which seem to paralyze uh, analysts so much, right? But you know, the binaries of sacred and profane are completely unproblematic. But the, but, but the problems are as as yeah. you know, we in the scholarly mode, the, yeah. the problem the the problem yeah. occurs at the level of analysis, and not at the level of experience and, and practice, right? So they had no issues. I mean, to me, it was uh, you know uh, quite a sight that the priest was actually performing arti for the engine that was driving, you know, going off. But then you know, subsequently, when I caught up with the priest and I spoke to him. It was completely normal to him. It didn't seem in any way unusual. And he explained to me that he had done that because, you know, the railways were fraught with danger and he was just, you know, uh, extending the protection of the gods to the trains themselves so that they could take their passengers, you know, to a safe, uh, to a safe journey, right? So this this sort of uh, generosity of spirit, if you like, right, which... Uh, and a very, in, I mean, this this was uh, for me a, a different way of thinking about how Hinduism can be inclusive, right? So it's not just inclusive in terms of embracing different religious cultural practices, but here, you know, the Atani universe, in a sense, was being engulfed under the protection of the guardian deities. So the deities were not just protecting their devotees or just human beings, but it also extended to uh, a non-human world, if you like, right? Including the world of machines and 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 trains and tracks and you know, inanimate uh, materiality, right? So that that made me think about the notion of inclusion uh, in in you know, in a Hindu context and in rather different way. Um, and so, so the research journey itself was uh, inflected with these kinds of experiences. It it was a, it was a, a wonderful uh, journey because uh, multiple journeys, I should say, because I traveled on the train from Singapore to Malaysia on the west coast of Malaysia and the east coast of Malaysia multiple times, right? And as I said, part of my methodology was actually, uh, you know, to capture uh, what I would see while I was on the train. And and so I, because, because I was looking for temples within railway premises and being on the train gave me proximity to railway premises so I could see, you know, from the train where the temples were. And most of the temples were built along the railway tracks, near platforms, near housing uh, projects and things like that. So, I, you know, I, I call this methodology ethnography on the move, right? That, that you actually uh, it's kind of generating information and, and, and data while being on the move. So, so that was a very interesting part of the, of the research journey. So, I mean, if I think in terms of methodological innovations, one was this idea of ethnography on the move, because 
I was interviewing people on the train, right? I was talking to the guards, I was talking to the train attendants. Uh, when the train stopped at platforms, I would get down and go buy a cup of tea and then talk to the station master there and then get back on the train. So this also sort of uh, went against the grain of what is considered deep, immersive fieldwork, right? And I, and I talk about this idea of episodic uh, fieldwork. And, and I know that in anthropology, we tend to be somewhat skeptical of of these fleeting encounters in favor of sort of my two years of solid fieldwork in one place. But the nature of my research uh, necessitated these kinds of uh, innovations. And, and I, I'll say that, you know, in totality, even these episodic and uh, fleeting moments were very consequential uh, for how they shaped uh, future research uh, journeys that I, I undertook and, and and things like that. Well, no, it's utterly fascinating because the the site, the quote unquote site of your research is not static. Right, right? exactly. The site is actually the corridor, right? And so yeah. clear, clearly there are not only cultures and places, be they temples or, or shopping centers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Right. And there are cultures in, in sort of um, um, modes of connection or site mm-hmm. or, or, you know, um, you know, pathways, you know, there yes. there are cultures along certain flights. There are cultures along certain trips. There are cultures uh, within, you know, if you know, if I, if I'm on the one of the subway lines in Toronto, it'll be a very different culture than one of the subway lines in in yeah. in New York City. Yeah, Pal- palpable, right? Absolutely. Uh, above and above and beyond the 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 the, the, the municipal and the the, the the sort of national backdrop, there's and, and particular lines. You'll notice particular cultures based on yes. whether it, whether this goes uh, through the financial district or through downtown or through et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. so it is it is fascinating, but it also it just calls to mind this. I mean, this this idea that's difficult to wrap your mind around, which you know when you think about relativity, that really uh, the object there, like the person on the train, is still right. Yeah, they're not moving. Yeah. You know. You could be on a plane and you're sitting and you're dining and you're chatting and yeah. you're relaxing as if you're in a living room. So there is an experience to be had in the context of that of that 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 movement. So it's it's right. it really is interesting. Yeah. Um uh two final questions. One question is um what most intrigues you about this project or intrigued you? Like what, what do you find most captivating about this uh line of research? Yeah. So I think uh for me, one of the uh, the, the biggest sort of uh, uh, inspirations, I would say, of this research was that uh, to to come to the realization that both the railways and the religious uh, landscapes in Singapore and Malaysia were built by the same constituency, right? It was the same group of people that built the railways and built the temples. Uh, and what has been important in this book for me is is to actually think about the book as a space where historical contributions of laborers uh, in building railways and uh, temples can be rendered visible. I, I think that's been you know, an important kind of uh, analytical uh, you know uh, project that you know to recognize these people as historical actors with capacities, etc. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to do in this book also is to talk about what I call the non-laboring lives of labor, which which I think we don't talk about enough, right? When we think of labor, we think of them as having laboring lives. But I wanted to present 
uh, these railway laborers as having three-dimensional everyday lives, just like you and I, right? And that they they did more than just labor. Uh, so, you know, one way I thought of, of talking about that was to, to talk about the non-laboring lives and capacities of railway labor. And I think of temple building and religion making as one instance of this non-laboring life of labor, you know? And, and I think, uh, you know, I, I'd like to shift the attention uh, to, to that constituency uh, in talking about the histories of the railway. So much has been written about railway history. And of course, railway labor has been talked about, but mostly in the context of uh, strikes and, uh, you know, uh, disciplining of labor and labor welfare, you know, how the British talk about about labor. But we don't hear about, you know, what did these laborers do after office hours, right? What kind of lives did they lead? You know, what kind of families did they have? What did they do in their spare time? So so one one aspect of the work that I found very inspiring is is to focus on the laborers. And, and, uh, you know, what I found... uh, Interesting also is that I've spoken to many of these individuals, um, you know, who are now in their 70s and 80s, right, who were actually involved in building some of these uh, temples. Uh, What I find inspiring is the level of commitment that they continue to display towards the temples that they had built, right? Uh, It's it's well known that uh, in Malaysia, a cluster of the uh, Malaysian Indian community still lives uh, in a very impoverished state. So, say economically, they have not made uh, much progress. You know, they really sort of uh, constitute part of the urban poor in cities, and you know, they haven't kind of made the transition from being plantation labor into urban, you know, dwellers and wage earners very well. So, so they live very difficult lives, and uh, one one. Uh, sort of aspect of the research, which I did not anticipate when I first started this, was that when I spoke to these men who are now in their 70s and, you know, late 60s and early 80s, uh, how much pride they took in the fact that the Indian community had built the railway infrastructure in the country, right? And they wanted to take ownership of that uh, and they very much uh, applauded uh, the fact that I was doing something to document uh, the, the presence of, of of railway labor and their role in, in building temples, right? Because they really felt that the community had suffered from different kinds of erasures and silences, uh, et cetera. And they felt that, you know, talking about their the role of the Indian labor in building temples was one way to continue to remember the Indian community and its contributions to building Malaysia in in the first place, right? So this was something that I didn't actually expect at the beginning of my research. I thought it was just going to be about temple building and and, and religion making and railway construction. But then this connection with uh, uh, sort of uh, nationalism and sort of the idea that uh, as citizens of, of of a Malaysian state, which uh, in some ways uh, perhaps could do more to look after its its uh, you know impoverished communities, uh, it, it surfaced in in the in in the final stages of the research. And uh, the people I was talking to were very very committed to this idea that the link between uh, Indian labor 
and and the and, and the railways should never be forgotten, right? So in fact, I dedicate the book to the forgotten laborers to build Malaysia and Singapore. So so this this I would say was an un- unanticipated uh, sort of uh, research outcome, uh, you know, which which I found very inspiring because the book then really did become about uh, giving voice or at least creating a space where the voices can be heard. Fascinating. Um, so perhaps final question, is this work that you hope to continue? What what now? What next? Right. So, I mean, this this work has taken me a long time to, to finish. So I'm, I'm for the moment uh, uh, just enjoying having reached this point. But uh, I am working on, on uh, another book project, which also deals with this uh, idea of mobility of, of uh, Hindu gods and goddesses. So I'm actually uh, in the midst of doing uh, new research on what I call the uh, uh, Hindu deities on world tour, right? Uh, so as as you know, Hinduism uh, gives a lot of importance to processional deities, right? Who venture out from the temples uh, in order to, uh, you know, just sort of give uh, darshan to their devotees. Um, I have in the last few six months or so witnessed uh, these Utsa Murthis, processional deities crossing uh, national boundaries, right? So there are some very famous temples in India uh, at Tirupati and, uh, you know, a couple of others in Kerala uh, who send their processional deities to diasporic shores. So many of them arrive in Singapore and Malaysia and they do, uh, you know, they take part in a festival here and then from from here they move to other places like so i'm tracking one particular uh set of uh icons that arrived from tirupati to singapore and then ended up in seattle right at the temple there so i'm sort of tracking the uh transnational movement of of deities uh i call this the phenomenon of globally sojourning hindu deities uh and and i you know talk about this as divine visits across transnational borders uh, so i'm interested in how these transnational visits uh, you know, are entangled in spiritual and economic and commercial processes as well. And, you know, what you, you had said earlier about the Shaktification, right? Uh, so this paper really looks at the, this this idea of the making, unmaking, and the remaking of sacrality, right? So, for example, these icons, when they come from India, have to be desacralized, right? So you remove their energies, right? When you pack them in cargo boxes, they're transported, on the plane, they come to Singapore, and at the airport, they are resacralized, right? So they can be rendered uh, ready for for worship. So I'm very interested in this process of you know what happens when you desacralize deities, and you know as I said, it's the sort of the making, unmaking, and remaking of sacrality. Uh, so so that's something I'm looking at, but also looking at the logistics of global travel and how religious, legal, and political conditions govern these movements. Uh, but ultimately, I'm interested in looking at how uh, devotees negotiate uh, notions of darshan and bhakti and shakti in these divine visitations as deities travel across transnational borders. So, so that's what I'm currently working on. Well, well that sounds fascinating. Well, um, uh, enjoy the fact that this book is out, and when you're good and ready, and um has pursued this line of research, and it's, it's out into the world. Uh, definitely reach out and we'll cover it on the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj, for this opportunity to talk about the work. It's been wonderful talking to you. You're welcome. Thank you for appearing today.
for those listening, we've of course been speaking with Dr. Benita Silva about a brand new open access book. Uh, the link is on the podcast notes. It's Temple Tracks, Labor, Piety, and Railway Construction in Asia. Um, keep well, keep listening until next time, and uh, perhaps consider you know, the extent to which we can justify anything. Take care. <laughs>